Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Well, hey, Pastor. Hey there, Dr. Robin. How, do, how, does, uh, how does today find you? Look, it's a Monday. It's a glorious day. Um, the Lord is with me in all things. <laughs> and, um, you know, my partner made me a breakfast and left it on the stove for me. It got cold waiting for me to wake up. But um, I'm good. I feel refreshed. I got in bed at like 1030 last night. You, uh... You're really, uh, you're really living your Monday, living it, living it well today, aren't you? You sound like you went to church yesterday. <laughs> well, I kind of did because we had some friends over and we were having, you know, queer people, we have church differently than other people. Understood. Okay. And Understood. so, so the friends are over, which are friends of yours. We were just having, um, I was playing with my cold smoke infuser and we were making some cocktails and after brunch and, um, yeah, we were talking all things spiritual and energetic, and yeah, I felt like I did go to church yesterday. Good, I'm glad. Well, the, you 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 seem highly favored and blessed today. Look, let me tell you, <laughs> living in this world, living in this world, which is on fire right now, um, I got to be highly favored and blessed. I know you do. I know you do. It just cracks me up that we're using old school uh, faith. <laughs> vernacular in this in this space because it's so not us. Let me tell you, I just not break out into me every time. Hymn. Oh, okay. The, the yeah, that's the, really that's the point where I mute you. That's the point where <laughs> I, as the person that is in control of the audio, mutes you. <laughs> I mean, but this is why I love being a theologian because the tradition is so rich and and we have well, we as the institutional church and mostly white folks have so leveled a logic of dominance that has um, that has eradicated and annihilated the heart of what the tradition is. And so, you know, when 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 I was traveling and on an airplane all the time and, you know, I'm an intense introvert. And so I don't talk to people when I'm on an airplane, but that those few occasions when when people would see me pull out a book and and ask me what I do for a living you know I, I try to tell people I'm a roofer but on on the on the one one off chance on the one off chance that I tell people I'm a theologian um you know they then they want to know what does that mean right and so right. I um I'm just trying to get back to the heart of our faith you know um, which is why we do this podcast and is. which is why it we is. do our work. Um, but yeah, I'm good. It's a Monday and um, I, f- I feel gifted and blessed that I have another breath in my, in my lungs um, living in a world where um, it literally people are, uh, cannot breathe, whether from police right. brutality, from policing policy um, or from coronavirus. So um yeah, I don't I don't take my days for granted. I understand. I understand. I'm with you. Well, we are going to jump right into our conversation today because um, Yes, we are. We we have um a very special a, a, guest. A very special guest with us, um an activist, a writer, um a podcaster, a leader, um a, a woman who um, has re- I mean, has really kind of changed the landscape and the narrative for a lot of folks um, and, and, and came on the scenes, at least for, from a visibility standpoint for many of us um, during her time in Ferguson. Um, yesterday, of course, was the 
I hate the word anniversary, um, the, the date, the, the recognition of the date that, that Mike Brown was murdered. Right. And um, we are thrilled that um, Brittany Packnett is joining us today on the Activist Theology Project. Brittany, welcome. We're really, really thrilled you're here. Hey, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Feeling blessed and highly favored as well. All <laughs> right. Let us. Yes. Come on. Yes. Come on. We might, look, we might have church today. We, we just we might, might have church. Where two or three are gathered, right? Here we are. That's right. Exactly. That's right. That's right. Exactly. That's right. Here we find ourselves. I'm happy to, to talk a little bit more about myself and, and mostly say thank you for the space and for allowing me to be a part of you all's awesome conversations. Um, I am a double PK. My father was a black liberation theologian. My mother is an ordained minister. My father pastored a church in St. Louis that was the home church of Dredd and Harriet Scott for a time. Uh, oh, so steeped yeah. um, in history uh, and always raised to understand a table flipping Jesus. So I don't know who these other folks have been talking about all this time. Like I genuinely did not meet that other Jesus people talk about until I was like 12 and I was very confused. Yeah. Um, I am uh, a mid <laughs> I was raised in St. Louis uh, and all of the beautiful and sometimes troubling things that that means. Uh, but I'm grateful to come from a community of incredibly tenacious, innovative, creative people who are continuing to shock and change the world. Um, I am a sister. My younger brother Barrington is a consultant and also a minister. Um, I, I used to say I'm the heathen of the family, but really I just chose social justice work as my, my ministry. Yeah. Uh, but he is an inspiration to me every day. And he um, uh, has defied so many odds and expectations in his own life. And he just teaches me how to be fearless. Yesterday I watched a video of him skydiving and I was like, who are you, bro? Oh, wow. <laughs> who are you? Wow. <laughs> wow. I am a partner and wife to a brilliant black man named Reggie Cunningham. He is a photographer and, um, digital media specialist and creative and um, my favorite comedian and uh, an incredible support and visionary. Uh, he and I just celebrated a really special milestone. I was um, very honored to be one of a number of activists on the cover of British Vogue and he mm. was the photographer. So he was oh, nice. one of the very black photographers to ever take a cover photo for that magazine. Um, and it was really special that God fixed it up for us to be able to do that together and speak to uh, this moment in history um, and out the beauty and the beauty of black people um, in the middle of our community being so critical to how the world has been transforming. So um, I am all of those things. I am very proudly a black woman. I am uh, very proudly a person of faith. Um, I am continuously and always aspiring to be an effective co-conspirator of all other marginalized people across the globe. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm somebody who tries to very intentionally learn in public because I find that the opportunities that I have, as especially as a former educator, um, to teach other people what people were kind enough to teach me, those are the opportunities when I really feel like I'm living out God's purpose in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and any chance I get to speak and teach truth that moves people, not just to feelings, but to actions, um, I, I feel like um, I feel like it was a, a job well done and a, a day well spent. So, mm. yeah, that's I love that. And I I'm happy to I'm happy to be in the number. I'm happy to be one of the thousands, if not millions of people across this work who wake up every morning and choose to practice courage uh, mm. and are, are doing so in ways that will transform the earth beneath us um, for all of us to benefit, whether we know their names or not. I love that you you know you talk like a theologian. So like when you when you when you when you say these things, it warms my heart because it resonates so deeply with me in the way that I have been trained. Like when you talk about being a partner and a wife, um, yeah. that 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 both and piece um, feels to me like um, part of your vocation in the world is being this partner with Reggie. Um, to do good, to practice courage, to um, have habits of justice. And um, so I just love that the way you the way you frame that. 
Thank you. My friend Angela calls me Bishop because I, I end up preaching everywhere I go. And I, I love like, it. I love it. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. And I mean, I really believe that that is that is the basis of that great commission, right? That if if we are to love one another as Christ loved us, then that love is about community and partnership. And anything mm-hmm. that good happens in the world happens because of community and partnership, right? We often will assign something to a particular leader or a particular charismatic personality or a particular, you know, firebrand speaker or preacher. But beyond and behind all of that, there's an entire community of people who decided to operate in partnership. Um, and if, you know, if it wasn't immediate partnership in, in that particular campaign or issue, there is community that stands behind and, and created and evolved the person who made the choice, right? So right. none of yes. us work alone anytime, right. anytime. Right, that's yes. right. Yes. And Jesus was real clear um, when he spoke about the ways that we were supposed to be doing this work together. Yeah. And, and you know, in, in naming um, the least of these, That's right. you know, many of us with many of us, especially those that, that echo, you know, my whiteness and, and our, our perceived place in the world would think that when Jesus was talking about the least of these, that he was talking about those that were different from us. I mean, I actually think that Jesus might've been talking about the tax collectors and the, mm-hmm. and the, uh, policymakers when he mentioned the least of these, <laughs> I, I prefer to think that, you know, that Jesus's perspective um, centered uh, those that that were unlike um, unlike the rest, but um, I I I I completely understand your bishop moniker, and uh, and uh, would would echo that would echo that that uh, that sentiment. Well, Brittany, we we're it's no secret to any of us listening and to any of us that are you know a, a part of the world um, or at least a part of this country at this moment that. You know, we're knee deep in um, a, a re-election process, um, a re-election process that, um, at least for right now, you know, seems to be um, seems to be moving forward um, in the way that our democracy intended it to be. Um, but we we are yet to know who um, the likely Democratic nominee Joe Biden will select as his running mate. Um, By the time this episode drops, we may know that. But as of right now, we don't. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we're also knee deep in what we know to be and and are watching in real time. um, The suppression of votes, the gerrymandering of districts, the ways that states and locales continue to kind of do the president's dirty work in figuring out how to minimize the 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 votes at, or the potential votes of black and brown people. Um, and so we'd like to dig in a little bit with you on kind of where you see things um, today, where we find ourselves um, and and how you see the next few months playing out as it as it relates to um, both the fullness of Joe Biden's ticket, as well as um, the ways that we are going to see um, this election pan out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the as we all go forward into the next 80 plus days, which is really not a long time, and we have right. to be very clear that even though it feels like this has been a marathon because it has been and it feels like this election frankly, has been going on since the day Donald Trump won. And I say that with an asterisk, uh, the yeah, 26th, yeah. uh, that um, there is that this this sprint to the finish line is ever more important um, and, and perhaps even more important than the time that preceded it. But what we know to be true is that no matter what you're involved in, who your candidate is, who you want to see in that VP slot, that the number one issue of this election is actually not going to be anything that is attributed to uh, to to anybody on the Democratic ticket. It is going to be everything 
uh, about voter suppression, voter mm-hmm. intimidation, and voter disenfranchisement. Mm-hmm. That the fact that this is not every the only story everybody is writing every day right now um, is preposterous to me. And it means that those of us with the circle of influence, whether that be the four people in your house or the people who listen to your podcast or the folks who follow you online, everyone in your circle of influence needs to know this be shouting it from the rooftops and be supporting the organizations that are fighting it. Um, And I say that because voter suppression and disenfranchisement is obviously not new to this country. It has been foundational to this country to limit uh, power and access to that power to white land-owning men. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, still in the decades, a centuries long fight for the franchise, we continue to see a process where there are two steps taken forward and four steps taken back. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we saw um, our now ancestor Congressman John Lewis pass away, still not having seen the restoration of the Voting Rights Act that he and a million and and so many others bled for um, after this, after the Supreme Court dismantled some of the most important parts of that law back in 2013. Mm -hmm. So there are basic pieces of voter suppression that we currently don't have a defense against. Um, The fact that the Southern states and and other states with a history of voter suppression uh, do not have the boundary setting uh, acts in the voter in the Voter Rights Act um, that used to exist is deeply problematic. The kind of gerrymandering that we've seen for decades, the kind of polling place closure that we've seen for decades, the um, all of the redlining um, that we know can translate from housing to elections that we've seen yes. for decades. All of this is not new, and this is very typical to um, the tactics of voter suppression that are leveraged by people who have no interest in making sure that every person has a vote. But what we know to be true is that on top of all of that, that this administration and the occupant therein are leveraging this virus, this pandemic, and the general chaos happening in the world to further suppress people's votes. Right. We see dismantling the U.S. Postal Service, a thing people didn't even think could happen. Right. Granted that somebody in a blue outfit will come to our place of residence and drop off the mail and they'll take the mail from us and that that is just a fact of life. No, it's not a fact of life. It was built through laws and is managed through regulations. Most people didn't even know that the Postmaster General is a close Trump ally, Mm -hmm. but the Postmaster General is a close Trump ally. Most people didn't know that the president could actually uh, stick his hand in the way the USPS does their business from how much they charge for first class mail, i.e. an absentee ballot or a mail-in ballot, um, how uh, quickly that mail could be delivered, i.e. delaying those things for up to two weeks so that uh, deadlines for receiving mail-in ballots across the states actually pass before everyone Mm -hmm. can have their voices heard. People took for granted that these things could happen with the flip of a switch and they have been happening. And because of the chaos that we've been experiencing, most people haven't been paying attention. So the story of this election is voter suppression and voter disenfranchisement. We haven't even talked about the ways in which formerly incarcerated people um, have that right to vote stripped from them permanently in so many places. And how in Florida, even after fighting for years to restore that, uh, Ron DeSantis, who knows how to steal an election because he's done it before, right. uh, figured out how, how to um, dial that progress back by forcing those formerly incarcerated folks to have to pay fines and fees, which is basically just a poll tax in Florida. Exactly. Right. So we find ourselves in the middle of a moment where there is a confluence of evil that if we are not careful to pay attention to how it is carefully stitched together, with great intention, piece by piece, little by little, then one day we will look back and not even recognize the already fragile democracy um, that existed uh, years prior. We will not recognize it. Uh, and we will suddenly say, how did this happen? When did when did this happen and who did it? It's happening right in front of us. Now is the time to pay attention and to be supporting Places like the Lawyers Committee uh, for Civil Rights, places like the ACLU, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. These are the folks that are taking head on the fight to preserve and control our democracy so that it doesn't um, so that it doesn't slip from the hands of everyday people. Hmm. 
Brittany, I'm wondering if we can connect voter suppression to your emphasis on community. And what I'm thinking here is if voter suppression is coming from policymakers and those with um, extreme power to like stall the postal service, how can, how can communities of culture and white communities respond in a way to um, both advocate for change and also um, potentially disrupt what, what the powers to be are trying to do. Yeah. So there are a lot of ways and to be totally honest, I'm still in conversation with a lot of the people who do this work that I know to make sure that I am saying the right things and helping to Mm -hmm. amplify the right solutions. Um, But the first thing, like I said, to do is to be shouting this stuff from the rooftops. They have to know that we know. If they think that they can do these things in secret, then they win. So that's the first thing. Um, And when I say they, I'm speaking of the federal government. I'm also talking about state governments and local municipalities. You need Mm -hmm. to know who sits on your board of elections or your election commission for your precinct, um, for your county, for your city, for your state. You need to know who your secretary of state is. That's usually a statewide elected office that most people don't pay attention to, but they control your elections. This is precisely how Brian Kemp was able to anoint and appoint himself governor Mm -hmm. of the state of Georgia because he was the secretary of state who got to oversee the rules of the election he was running in. So he got to be the referee and the player. Mm -hmm. So these are the kinds of ways that people are using these seemingly innocuous positions to um, put things in favor of one particular party and to dilute the power of not only another party, but 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 entire groups of people. Um, So know who your secretary of state is, know what those rules are and socialize those rules and deadlines among the people, you know, it is not going to work for you to think on November 2nd that in most states across this country, you can go and get an absentee ballot and just pick it up from your local grocery store, library or post office fill it out and then put a stamp on it and have your vote counted. That's not the way that works. We've got 50 different sets of rules in 50 different states. And then those rules continue to differ by county, precinct, city, et cetera. So you need to know what are the rules for your specific area, make a plan and get your people on board, get those folks together to make sure um, that they know what the deadlines are that will govern their lives as well. And as we say in the church, govern yourselves accordingly. Right, (laughs) right. Well, you know, Robin and I both find ourselves in Tennessee. And I mean, just this yeah. past week, the Tennessee Supreme Court overturned a lower court, court ruling that would have allowed eligible voters to vote via absentee ballots mm. due to the pandemic. I mean, we we have watched in our state, um, you know, the 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 minimization of of voting rights for all of us happened before our eyes and no one saw it coming. Um, I mean, you know, we're watching it happen in real time. And so when you say, you know, we're going to look back and say, how did this happen? I mean, it's like, you know, putting an egg in in a cold pan of water and slowly turning the heat up. I mean, at some point, the heat becomes so hot that a change happens in the in the egg itself. (laughs) We, We have had the heat turned up a little bit at a time. And, and it's happening before our eyes. And all of a sudden, we're just not even going to notice that it's bypassed us. Mm. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. We're not going to notice that it's bypassed us. And frankly, people from across the globe who have experienced similar kinds of administrations have been warning us to this. They have been telling us to call fascism fascism when we see it. And yet right. I still remember back in 2016, I was on a panel um, during the time of the DNC with you know, very well-connected people who have been in politics their whole life. And I named the threat of what we were facing fascism and there was an audible gasp. We actually can't afford to be surprised by the pattern and practice that we see before us when history, global history, can tell us exactly what we're looking at if we decide to pay attention. Right. Yes. Yes. Keep your eyes on the prize. Mm-hmm. Yep. Hold on. <laughs> so, so 
so as we're as we continue, so we 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 talked loosely about um about the the vice presidential um uh, nomination that that is that is pending this week. We assume um, we've seen already. Um, an onslaught of comments and misogyny and, you know, the, the structures of patriarchy rearing their heads as we assume Joe Biden is going to select a woman. Um, still yet to be determined whether, you know, whether it will be a woman of color, but we're already seeing the, the knitting of a narrative that minimizes the this woman's character, this yet to be known woman's character, um, wow. that minimizes her capability, that minimizes her capacity. I wonder if you could you could talk a little bit about um, you know the the ways that misogyny and the ways that our our inability to honor the the work and character of women um is still is still a, a radical part of this of this democratic process i mean it what, what i find fascinating is that when you start to talk to people everyday folks and this is anecdotal evidence but when you start to talk to people about who they think um the nominee should be most people have forgotten at this point that we're talking about so many women because Joe Biden explicitly declared that he was going to nominate a woman. And I'm not saying this has nothing to do with me talking about him as a candidate, but the idea that we can't even hold the space for that level of declaration to be like clear and precise in how we all move forward. Because if we really hear that as a precise and clear declaration, then that is calling everybody, that is calling all of society to be prepared to know what's going to come and be prepared to resist it anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you really hear yourself in the idea that this was said from the very beginning, he's going to pick a woman then what we should have all been doing was saying, okay, so that means we know the sexism is coming, the misogyny is coming, the misogynoir is coming because there are black women yes. on this list, right? There's going to be the inner, the intersectional hatred is going to come because there are Latinas on this list. Mm -hmm. Like all of that is coming. And therefore we have to be so forceful in beating this back that by the time he makes the announcement. Everyone knows that it is completely unacceptable for anybody to talk about women this way. Now let's go win an election, right? Mm -hmm. But what yeah. happened instead was that people not only were not ready to defend against it, people were participating in it. So suddenly we see these conversations about how, for example, Kamala Harris is too ambitious, right? Mm -hmm. So now she's been tagged with the angry black woman uh, uh, trope right. as if anybody who has ever run for elected office is not ambitious, right? right? <laughs> this idea that Kamala Harris is unqualified for the job of vice president because she may aspire to be president when she would be on the ticket with a vice, with the former vice president who is now running for president is asinine to me. And it should be asinine to everybody, yes. right? The hypocrisy is so clear. The irony is so rich that nobody should have been able to write that sentence or give that quote without laughter, right? When you think about now Karen Bass being drawn up as the anti-Kamala, right? The soft and meek, acceptable black woman, which is also an affront and an insult yes. to Karen Bass black women everywhere right that's not a compliment it's insulting to both women and the idea that a woman is either fiery and angry and therefore unacceptable or quiet and meek and and has no ambition and therefore is acceptable both of those tropes are deeply insulting and deeply rooted in both misogyny and racism which is why we call that thing misogynoir right yeah. when we think about um the ways in which uh, uh, the the women, all of the women on the list, that everything has been assessed from their style choices to their emotional capacity, um, and all of these kind of emotionally laden ideas instead of their qualifications, their readiness for the job, their records. These are the kinds of ways in which everyone should be assessed for the roles that will govern society. Um, and we seem to have been caught flat footed on that, even though we should have known it was coming. Um, right. And we should have been, and you know, I was a, a part of 
And now 1,700 Black women have signed a letter calling out the incredibly racist tropes, things like Aunt Jemima and other references that have been used specifically against the Black people on this VP short, the Black women on this VP shortlist, um, because it is, it, we should be able to very simply say, no one, and I mean no one, should think like this, speak like this, work like this, write like this. You certainly should not be assessing the the veep stakes, as we call them, through any of these lenses, subtle or not, um, and anything less is unacceptable. So can we please cut out the funny business so that we can get back to the business of actually protecting the most marginalized, snatching back our democracy and trying to move America mm-hmm. forward. Ugh. Yes. You know, Brittany, um, I, I said a couple weeks ago on the podcast about how, so I'm born to a Mexican woman, an immigrant actually, and an Anglo father. And I lived with my mother, my Mexican mother, for the first 12 years of my life. And she had me around a lot of women of color. So my first um, impression of authority were women of color. And like when I got into public school and later in college and and white people were in authority, I, I like learned to question that because that was not my experience growing up. And when I think about the misogyny and racism and the toxic theology that gets um, leveled against the slate of women of color, I think as a society, which is fragmented and broken and deeply conscripted into white supremacy and other supremacy cultures, we actually don't know as a culture, we don't know how to... um, we, we don't know how to honor the authority of black women. Mm, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I sure <laughs> like, like, like to me, it's like natural because I, that's how I was socialized. Right. But mm-hmm. as a, but as a culture, we question the, the mere authority that a, even a black woman would be considered. Yeah. Which is incredible when you think about the extreme positions of authority black women have been in throughout the history of this country. Right. I mean, you can go and go on Google right now and find the pictures of enslaved African women, not only cleaning houses and cooking the meals and managing entire estates, but literally breastfeeding white women's children. So we are, we have enough power and authority to literally provide the nutrients to your newborns, Mm -hmm. but not enough power and authority to be recognized in our full humanity and all of the ways in which we literally not only keep things running, but know how to actually build and create and innovate the engine that has to go in the machine first place. I think that there is a, there is a, it's, it's, it's amazing, but it's not surprising because white supremacy is a deeply fragile thing, right? It depends on the superiority of folks who have not proven themselves to be, who have not proven themselves culturally to be superior, right? Mm -hmm. So it Mm -hmm. relies on a set of myths, right? And I'm not talking about white people individually, right? We're talking about whiteness as a culture we're talking about supremacy culture right it depends on the set of myths and lies that says that that white people created everything that they controlled everything that they ran everything and that while the rest of the world was running around like brutes that they were the only sophisticated ones Mm -hmm. that is literally untrue all across the world it is untrue so because white supremacy is such a fragile thing it relies on the subjugation, intimidation, and degradation of people who show any power that could uh, that could come run against those myths of superiority. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Black women have shown ourselves to run against those myths of superiority all the time, whether we've gotten the credit or not. Um, and so it, it is it is amazing, but it is still unsurprising. And I do think that once everybody, all of us, we move our own egos out of the way enough to recognize the genius and innovation and power and leadership that can come from so many places that are led by people who don't look like us, 
the faster we can actually not only get to a place of collective healing, but a place of connective, a collective wellness for folks, mm-hmm. right? I did a, a TED talk on confidence, and I think people were a little confused as to why I chose what can feel like such a soft topic. And I chose it because I actually want there to be a revolution of confidence such that a confident black woman and a confident disabled person and a confident and, you know, two spirit indigenous person all receive the same kinds of resources and support and development that they deserve so that their genius can benefit all of us. Like we are literally moving out on the leadership and create creativity of people who we keep subjugating instead of allowing them and pushing them to be their most confident selves so that they can offer us the best of them mm-hmm. themselves. Right? Like, what if the cure for cancer is sitting in one of their brains, but we're missing it because we've created a, created a society that doesn't want to listen to those folks and that tells right. those folks not to be confident. That is a loss, a material loss for everybody. So beyond the moral argument, beyond the spiritual argument, the material argument, the argument for the bottom line says that we should actually be creating space that respects everybody's confidence and power and authority because we all benefit. Mm. You know, it reminds me that that piece about confidence reminds me of something that I have been sitting with for the past month or so, which is this. Our measure of freedom, emancipation and liberation collectively is is determined by how intimate we can be with one another. And what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is. Are we able to be in in right relationship with one another, with ourselves and with one another? And when we can do that, we can begin to chart a collective healing process where the relationship and I'm a theologian, so I I believe in right relationship and I believe in um, repairing relationships and reconciliation and things like that. Um, that when we begin to practice intimacy, real intimacy, we can achieve collective liberation. Well, and this is, this is what the beloved community was all about. Mm -hmm. Right. And I have been, I've been reading and thinking and praying a lot on the beloved community, because I think as an aspiration, we have lost hold of what that is and what it can be. Perhaps we never fully grasped it entirely um, societally. Uh, But I, you know, we're in a place where outrage is then is the the headline of the day, right? Right. To be fundamentally clear, the outrage is justified. (laughs) I have plenty of outrage. The frustration is justified. Um, The the deep and abiding uh, abhorrence of where we are now and what we continue to see people endure in a world with so much abundance to see people suffer from scarcity, to see people suffer from the violence of poverty, to see people um, die because of the color of their skin, to see people um, be cast out of loving spaces because of who they love or how they identify or what clothes they wear. All of that stuff is outrageous and we Mm -hmm. should be outraged by it but what i also see happening is the perversion of that outrage to be seen as the end and not the means right if the outrage lights the fire then everything thereafter should be in service of building the things that replace the systems that harm us Mm. i often think about this as a tree and we are all eating fruit um, from a tree rooted in white supremacy and oppression, mm-hmm. you know, that grew in rotten soil that that bears healthy fruit for some people and rotten fruit for other people. And that ultimately ends up infecting all of us, whether or not you ate some fresh fruit or not. And so if if that is what we are all dealing with, then the point is to uproot the tree and to plant something in its place. You can't just uproot the tree. Then you're left with barren land and nobody eats. We actually have to replant something. We have to till new soil. We have to plant a new tree. We have to water it differently. We have to care for it differently. We have to shine different light on it. And ultimately, we have to make sure that that tree bears healthy fruit for everybody and not just a different set of people than the last tree did. And I worry so often that we get obsessed 
with with the with the spirit of revolution that is necessary, but that ultimately is the means to the end of abolition. That if revolution tears out the old things, that abolition is actually what we do to create a world where we're all free. Um, mm. And I, I I think also this this piece about relationship. I think people think that it's soft, and I think often it can be perverted to be soft. Right? This is what happens when we see police officers playing basketball with kids and it's right. like, you should right. play basketball with black people to not kill black people. Um, so we often see that right relationship perverted into something that it's not, but at its, at its core, the beloved community is about us all being in right relationship with ourselves and one another and with our creator, if you believe, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's an opportunity for us to exercise and practice those right relationships as we are building the love as as we are building the beloved community so i have to be seriously thoughtful about not just what i say online or that i write in you know books or op-eds about the the um lives that disabled people deserve to live it's also about whether or not i'm actually in relationship with actual disabled people right right am I listening to them am i learning from them am i respecting their persons am i only going to them when i have a question about disability stuff right or am i actually like hey sis how are you today what's going on am i celebrating them or am i only mourning them when something has happened right, right. this is the same we hear from our black trans sisters don't now you're finally talking about us but you're only talking about us in, in death you're not mm-hmm. talking about our power you're not talking about our yes. leadership you're not talking about the ways we live every day where we want mm-hmm. to love and learn and thrive and have joy and smile and sing and do all the things everybody else gets to do right mm-hmm. that is what it looks like to practice the kind of relationship right now that we want to see and that we all deserve to have and experience yeah. When the beloved community is finally fully realized. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And outrage and activism are necessary. But as you said, they're they're the wrong barometer for the possibility of what we can be. They're the wrong, they're the wrong, they're the wrong thing to, they might be the thing that instigates, but they're the wrong, they're the wrong barometer or or temperature um, gauge for where we, where we need to end up. Yep. 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 That's exactly. Right. You know, Brittany, you talk about your tree metaphor. There's a book. I don't know if you've heard about it or heard of it. It's called Deep Roots. It's written by an anthropologist, two anthropologists of color, I believe. And they um, went to um, places in the South where there were plantations and they did a bunch of research on um, the community and the soil and the the what remains in the soil are chemicals that um prevent right growth and so we we know that things like um slavery and uh, and uh, oppression has a material impact on the earth yes yeah. and this and this book um completely shows the ways in which oppression through slavery um, has stunted um, vital growth in places where there were plantations. And, you know, if people don't think that that things like oppression or racism or um, capitalism or these things that that have tentacles if if people don't think that there is a material impact um people people will be surprised to learn the material impact and it and your metaphor is a great example of the fact that we can't just fertilize the tree that's right you know we we can't just it's not just white people wanting to like well what can i do to stop racism no it's not about that it's about a deeper sense of relationship and belonging to to like nurture the tree and sometimes the best thing to do is to remove the tree till the soil replant something and be in right relationship with those seeds and uh-huh. like who are the ancestors behind us that are pushing us? Who, yeah. who, who, who's in front of, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, how do we actually be in relationship with all that is? Because the material impact is so great 
we can't afford to dismiss it. No, that's right. And I think that there's, I mean, that this moment is calling us into that opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, people are experiencing the chaos. People are certainly experiencing the trauma and the grief of all of these multiple pandemics happening at once. Um, what I believe though, truly is that for all of those, all of those of us who are still able to function as fully as, as is possible right now, um, that we have an obligation to see this moment as an opportunity to do precisely what you're talking about, mm -hmm. to begin to examine ourselves, interrogate ourselves, interrogate the spaces that we rule and operate and govern um, our homes, our teams, our uh, our churches, our synagogues, our mosques, our block, our neighborhood association, whatever it is that you and wherever it is that you exert control and influence, you we are each required to continuously evolve into better and better co-conspirators for the people mm -hmm. we say we're in service of. Mm -hmm. And yes, we need to be co-conspirators to marginalize people everywhere. But you also need to be a good co-conspirator to the other people who share your same kind of privilege because you need to help them free themselves yes. from their oppressive thoughts and behaviors too, right. right? Right. There is a, and that is the obligation of this moment that if we are individually not all different and therefore doing collectively different things because of this moment, then we will have, we will have failed the test. Like we will have failed what this moment called us into. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think people are joking right now and it's like, okay, there are killer bees and there are hurricanes and there's earthquakes happening in the Carolinas and there's a pandemic and people are opening just to close again. And there's more racism and more systemic oppression and more killing of black trans women. Like people are like, this is clearly evidence that God is mad at all of us. Mm. And people are, you know, laughing at that. But, you know, the worst is if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then they will hear from heaven, right? And like, the opportunity for us <laughs> is to turn from our wicked ways and actually decide to be different people. If right. God is actually mad at us, then how do we get in right relationship with God? How do we get in right relationship with the God that exists in all of these other people divinely? Um, how do we get in right relationship um, with, with how we are called to take care of this planet that we were given? Mm -hmm. The way that we do that is to begin to get in right relationship with ourselves and one another and recognize that God lives in all of us. Mm. And that's yes. why they call her Bishop friends. That's why they, <laughs> that's why they call her Bishop. <laughs> So I wonder, uh, I wonder if we, okay. talking to me comes out all the time. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wonder as we're, as we're getting ready to, to close up here, if we could just take a little bit of a, of a side turn and speak a little bit about, um, you know, the, the ancestral reminders that we're getting from, um, your time in Ferguson, um, I, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that, you know, yesterday was the day that we um, memorialized the, the death of Mike Brown and, and the, the work that for me, I mean, the, the, that, that occurrence really began for many of us, specifically those of us that I, that are white folks, um, kind of a recognition that something that something needed to stir, that something needed to change. And that we, I mean, for me, it was the point where I said, um, I, like, I, I am, I am now engaged in this work, um, in a way that I never, that I never understood that I, I was engaged before. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about, um, how, um, where, where we think we, where we find ourselves, um, these these years after after the death of Mike Brown, and and are there are there um, voices from that time that are that are helping to to narrate the time that we find ourselves in today? Um, yes, is is the answer. There are voices that not only narrate the time they were in today, but who are who are far out in the head of where I think so many of us are or were mm. at that time. 
are yes. teaching us the lessons of how to move forward. So what I will say, especially um, having this conversation just a day after um, the memorializing of, of Mike Brown's murder um, is to remind everybody a couple of things. One, that we would not have been ready for this moment and would not have seen the massive resistance that we saw across this country if it had not been for the bravery and the fortitude and the courage of thousands of Ferguson protesters. Yes. Um, yes. There was a latency, frankly, to uh, to civic engagement through the realm of protest if in far too many places, not all places, not all people, not all organizations, but in far too many places, people had forgotten that the role of citizen requires us to resist the things that kill us. And there is uh, 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 there is respect that is owed to Tef Poe and to Mama Cat and to Kayla Reed and to Derricka Purnell and to the folks who drove the Mike Brown car, which literally was spray painted with nothing but his name and would show up at every protest and in front of every precinct for all of the people who rode buses down, for all of the people who came out of their homes, for Leslie McSpadden, for Mike Brown Sr. and every single one of Mike Brown's family members, um, for his classmates, for his teachers that showed up, for um, the, the elders and the clergy from multiple faiths that showed up to stand in, in the way and to get in what John Lewis called good trouble, for mm -hmm. the, the members of street organizations who put down their beefs to stand in solidarity with the community, for the folks who, for the black owned businesses that supplied food and protective gear and water and, you know, made sandwiches for the kids to the people who started the organizations to the people who cared for our health, people like Brittany Farrell and, and Netta. And I mean, so many people whose names we may never know yes. are the very reason why we are even sitting, able to sit here and have this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And anybody who has picked up any sign or, you know, gone to any protest or tweeted any hashtag that has to do with justice needs to thank the, the members of the Ferguson uprising, an uprising that lasted for 400 days, making it this country's longest direct action campaign uh, in history, um, not only to seek justice and accountability for Michael Brown Jr., but to actually demand that Black lives will indeed matter and be cared for and, and protected at all levels of decision-making and power. So, mm -hmm. so that's the first thing to remember. The second thing to remember um, is that these were regular folks. And I think in the ways that we have seen, I, I try to be very careful around, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to expand my platform and to be able to kind of do what I call spreading the gospel of justice and, and amplify other people. But I try my hardest to be really careful not to cross from visibility into like the celebritization of activism itself. Right. Because it can right. do this destructive thing of making people think that these 20 people will do all of the work, which A, is not a thing we do. We build teams, not saviors over here. But two, it also makes people think that if you don't operate like one of us who you see very often, that you are incapable of participating in the work of justice. Yes. Quite the contrary is true. We need you to participate in the work of justice from wherever you are, doing it in the ways that you are uniquely positioned to do um, with with the right mindsets uh, in tow. Right. So so we actually need the thousands and the millions. Um, and, and as many times as I have the opportunity to name other people, amplify other people, put the spotlight on other people and organizations, I try my best to do it because if I have a platform, it is to be shared. Right. We get blessed so that we bless other people. The whole point is that I don't if you want to do justice work, I don't need you to have to know me or or um, or follow me or um, be like me in order to be effective. Here are 50 other people, 100 other people, 5000 other people mm -hmm. who are better than me, smarter than me, more innovative than me, more creative than me, doing things I'm incapable of doing, who you should know, follow and emulate um, yes. and build on what they're doing. Um, in terms of who those folks are right now in Ferguson, I will shout out two people in particular, although there are many. Um, Kayla Reed and Michelle Higgins are the co-founders and co-directors of Action St. Louis. They were born of the, that organization was born of the Ferguson uprising, but has continued to do their really critical grassroots level work to shift and change St. Louis 
and the face of St. Louis as we once knew it. Um, so they have, um, they have dramatically increased voter engagement there and political education there. Um, they were able to successfully oust the, the St. Louis County prosecutor, Bob McCullough, who failed to prosecute uh, and charge Darren Wilson for the murder of Mike Brown. Um, they uh, contributed immensely to uh, Medicaid expansion just in this last electoral round, a couple of mm. actually last. Um, so in a red state, they passed Medicaid expansion. It was a very, very yeah. close race. And what we're yeah. learning now is a lot of the places where they uh, not only canvassed, but where they hired canvassers to canvass in their communities and paid them a living wage to do so. That those were some of the places that um, turned what could have been defeat into victory. Um, they also um, worked closely with the campaigners at the, at the Close the Workhouse campaign. Uh, dozens of people from across St. Louis who were committed to closing a minimum security prison um, in the middle of St. Louis City. The, the, um, the actual institution is likened unto Rikers in terms of how dangerous it is for people who are incarcerated. Um, the, the level of heat in there, the water that people were drinking, the food they were being served, the infestation of pests and things that were literally making people sick and killing people. Um, and just a few weeks ago, they pushed and pushed and pushed over two years. And just a few weeks ago, got the board of alder people in the city of St. Louis to not only commit to closing the workhouse, but to build uh, a, a committee to actually figure out where that money will be redirected for the sake and services of the, the people of the city of St. Louis. Ooh, so these amazing. are folks who are doing the work, right? Yes. And they're doing things that everybody was flying over six years ago. Ferguson, yeah. St. Louis, flyover country. This was the last place that people thought would have seeded the revolution. And in fact, it is becoming... Uh, one of the most critical sites of what abolition can look like once the evolution, once the revolution has taken place. Um, so I'm like deeply proud of those folks. I'm deeply proud to call them friends and people that I learn from every single day who are um, not only uh, changing the face of St. Louis, but building inclusive mo movements to be able yes. to do that. Mm. Well, yes. well, and a political dynasty just ended um, with the win of Cori Bush in, in St. Louis. It did. It did. And I think what people have to realize is that, um, and you know, th this was also the election where Kim Gardner, a very progressive DA for the mm -hmm. city of St. Louis, her seat after a number of direct attacks from um, people who are not interested in progress. Tashara Jones, also a black woman, the treasurer for the city of St. Louis and incumbent, had, had been attacked um, quite frequently, especially in the press. She was able to defend her seat. Um, she should be the mayor of St. Louis right now. She lost by 888 votes mm. on a ticket that was split by um, a number of people, including black men who had no chance of winning, but decided not to get out of the race. That's another conversation yeah. for another day. Yeah. Um, yeah. All that to say, like, there are lessons being taught all around us. And mm -hmm. we're looking at these victories as if they are sudden, right? We are looking at these victories as if, you know, these people just sprouted. No, these this was years of hard work. This was years of strategy. This was this was years of doing all of this stuff that is not sexy, that has nothing to do with being out in the street, and that has everything to do with being in continuous relationship with people to this point we were making earlier, and actually seeking real outcomes that have make a material difference in people's lives. So there are, and some of it is short-term work, some of it is long-term work, but for certain it is not episodic. And we mm -hmm. have to be deliberate about looking to all of the places, not just around the country, but around the globe that can teach us the lessons of freedom, because we don't actually have to go it alone and we don't have to start from scratch. There are folks who are yeah. doing it brilliantly every single day. Yes. Yes. I always tell people, don't recreate the will. We've got we've got teachers all around us. Let's That's pay right. attention. That's right. Well, Brittany, we uh, we could not be more grateful for um, your voice, um, for the work that that you're doing in the world, the work you continue to to encourage us to do. Um, why don't you share with our listeners what the best way uh, for them to follow you is? How they how they can um, pay attention to what's going on in uh, with you and the the amazing network of of conspirators that you're that you're doing things with in the world. 
Oh, that's kind. Um, well, my website is brittanypacknett.com. It's P-A-C-K-N-E-T-T. It's Brittany, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y, not N-E-Y like Spears, A-N-Y. Um, so brittanypacknett.com, and you can subscribe there. I send out information about what I'm up to, um, have some things that I'm working on in secret right now. So uh, I'm excited to be able to share those with the world once it is time. And the folks on that subscription list will get that stuff first. And then I'm um, at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. Excellent. Well, friends, we'll share those. We'll share those links for you in um, the episode description of the podcast. Um, I, I'm just thrilled that um, Robin and I had a chance to have this conversation with you today. And I think. Thank you so much. I, you know, I kind of feel like we've just been sitting at the kitchen table having church. I mean, that's I how I grew up. <laughs> yes. That's that's how that's how good theology that's how good theology gets born is at the kitchen table over a good meal. That's right. I love it. it. I love it, is it. indeed. Well, friends, until we see you again next week, um, don't forget follow Robin and I at Activist Theology on all of your favorite platforms. Don't forget the Activist and Theology share a tea. And um, Brittany has given us all a really clear understanding of how we get our hands dirty in the work. And I would just encourage all of you to figure out what it is that you can do this week to um, continue to ensure that justice and liberation and solidarity are at the forefront of all of our minds. Dr. Robin? Yes. Let's get free, y'all. Yeah, I'm ready to get free. Thanks, y'all. Until next week. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to Activist Theology dot kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds.